There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to episode 38 of Destination Disaster. I am your host, Devin Carney. With the war continuing to rage on in Ukraine, I wanted to provide more of an update on where both the Ukrainian and Russian forces stand. Each side has sustained casualties that cannot be undone. Ukraine, however, has suffered destructions at the hands of a belligerent nation that continues to attempt to utilize their Soviet-era equipment against a nation that, while smaller, has been able to rally the rest of the world around them. On February 24th, 2022, Russia launched a military campaign dubbed a Special Military Operation against the country of Ukraine. The commencement of this attack signaled to the world that Russia is no longer concerned with peace and only wants to enable further illegal expansion into a country that is only seeking peace. The invasion began on the morning of February 24th when Russian President Vladimir Putin announced in his public address a special military operation for the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. In his address, Putin espoused irredentist views, challenged Ukraine's right to statehood, and falsely claimed Ukraine was governed by neo-Nazis who persecuted the ethnic Russian minority. Minutes later, missiles and airstrikes hit across Ukraine, including the capital of Kyiv, followed by a large ground invasion from multiple directions. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky enacted martial law and a general mobilization. Russian attacks were initially launched on a northern front from Belarus towards Kyiv, a northeastern front towards Kharkiv, a southern front from Crimea, and a southeastern front from Luhansk and Donetsk. Russia advanced towards Kyiv, stalled in March, with Russian troops retreating from the northern front by April. On the southern and southeastern fronts, Russia captured Kherson in March and then Mariupol in May after a siege. On 19th April, Russia launched a renewed attack on the Donbass region with Luhansk Oblast fully captured by July 3rd. Russian forces continued to bomb both military and civilian targets far from the front line. Ukrainian forces launched counteroffensives in the south in August and in the northeast in September. I believe that very early on, we saw the failure of traditional Russian military doctrine. The tactics employed here have showed cracks, seen as Ukraine is a near-peer competitor, and when provided support with modern artillery, weapons, and surveillance, this has forced Russia's hand, which is why we've seen the indiscriminate shelling of civilian targets throughout the country. The second phase of the Russo-Ukrainian War initiated on April 5, 2022, and subsequently ended on September 5, 2022. This period of fighting has witnessed some of the worst crimes against civilians forced to survive on this battlefield. 
To date, it is estimated that between 7 and 29,000 civilians have been killed in this war, whether that be through indiscriminate shelling and bombardments or deliberate war crimes. I hate to say this, but as Russia becomes more desperate in an attempt to maintain their occupied territories, it's possible that the civilian toll will climb as an act of retribution and untrained conscripts not knowing the laws of war. On April 22, 2022, Russia commenced the second phase of the invasion with a unification of all forces located in southeastern Ukraine. This is potentially one of the first indications that manpower may have been suffering along the front lines as the army units were placed under the command of Alexander Vornikov. This too included units from the north and northeastern fronts. The plan was to launch an eastern offensive against a 300-mile line extending from Kharkiv to Donetsk and Luhansk. Simultaneously, missile strikes targeted Kiev and Lviv. As of April 30th, a NATO official described Russian advances as uneven and minor. An anonymous U.S. defense official called the Russian offensive very tepid, minimal at best, and anemic. Mikolaev Odessa Front On April 22nd, 2022, artillery and missile bombardment struck the key cities of Mikolaev and Odessa. On April 22nd, Russia's Brigadier General Rustam Minakayev and a defense ministry meeting said that Russia planned to extend its Mikolaev-Odessa Front after the siege of Mariupol further west to include the breakaway region of Transnistria on the Ukrainian border with Moldova. The Ministry of Defense of Ukraine described this intention as imperialism, saying that it contradicted previous Russian claims that it did not have territorial ambitions in Ukraine and that the statement was an admission that the goal of the second phase of the war is not victory over the mythical Nazis, but simply the occupation of eastern and southern Ukraine. Gregory Gotev, writing for Reuters on April 22nd, noted that occupying Ukraine from Odessa to Transnistria would transform it into a landlocked nation without any practical access to the Black Sea. On April 24th, Russia resumed its missile strikes on Odessa, destroying military facilities and causing two dozen civilian casualties. The Dnipro-Zaporizhia Front In the cities of Dnipro and Zaporizhia, missiles continued to rain down and bombs land indiscriminately. During this siege, the Dnipro International Airport was completely destroyed. Russian forces continued to fire missiles and drop bombs on the key cities of Dnipro and Zaporizhia. On April 10th, Russian missiles destroyed the Dnipro International Airport. On May 2nd, the UN reportedly evacuated about 100 survivors from the siege at Mariupol with the cooperation of Russian troops to the village of Bezemin near Donetsk, from whence they were moved to Zaporizhia. On June 28th, Reuters reported that a Russian missile attack was launched upon the city of Kremenchuk northwest or Zaporizhia detonated in a public mall and causing at least 18 deaths, while drawing condemnation from France's Emmanuel Macron and other world leaders who spoke of it as being a war crime. This front of the war witnessed some of the most intense fighting and attacks on key infrastructure such as the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, where fears of a nuclear fallout could occur, spreading over Europe. On July 7th, it was reported that after the Russians captured the nuclear power plant at Zaporizhia earlier in the invasion, they installed heavy artillery and mobile missile launchers between the separate reactor walls of the nuclear installation as a shield against possible Ukrainian counterattacks. Russia has also taken the swift decision to store ammunition and artillery munitions here at the nuclear power plant and between reactors. Now you tell me, does that make sense to you at all? This not only increases the risk of radiation fallout at the local level, but increases the radiation fallout risk to all of Europe. On August 19th, Russia agreed to allow IAEA inspectors access to the Zaporizhia plant from Ukrainian-held territory after a phone call between the President of France, Emmanuel Macron, and Russian President Vladimir Putin. A temporary ceasefire around the plant still needed to be agreed on for the inspection. Russia reported that 12 attacks with over 50 artillery shells exploded and had been recorded at the plant in the staff town of Enerhodar on August 18th. Also, on August 19th, Tobias Elwood, chair of the UK's Defense Select Committee, said that any deliberate damage to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant could cause radiation leaks and would be a breach of Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, according to which an attack on a member state of NATO is an attack on all of them. 
The next day, United States Congressman Adam Kissinger said that any radiation leak would kill people in NATO countries, which would be an automatic activation of Article 5. Zafarita Nuclear Power Plant is the largest generating facility in Europe, producing 5,700 megawatts of power. If an attack here were to cause a breach in just one reactor, the consequences would be catastrophic. We would not be simply looking at a regional outbreak contained in Ukraine, but one with severe implications on the rest of Europe. Additionally, artillery shelling impacted the coal ash dumps that are used by a local coal-fired power station, leading to a fire. The 750 kilovolt transmission line to the Naprovska substation, which is only one of four transmission lines that has not yet been damaged and cut by military action, passes over the ash dumps. At 12.12 p.m. on August 25th, the line cut off due to the fire below, disconnecting the plant and its two operating reactors from the national grid for the first time since it started operating in 1985. In response, Reactor 5's backup generators and coolant pumps started up and Reactor 6 reduced generation. Incoming power was still available via the 330 kilovolt line to the substation at the coal-fired station, so the diesel generators were not essential for cooling reactor cores and spent fuel pools. The 750 kilovolt line in Reactor 6 resumed operation at 12.29 p.m., but the line was cut by fire again two hours later. The line, but not the reactors, resumed operation later that day. On August 26th, one reactor restarted in the afternoon and another in the evening, resuming electricity supplies to the grid. On August 29th, 2022, an IAEA team led by Rafael Grossi went to investigate the plant. Lydia Evard and Massimo Aparo were also in the leadership team. No leaks had been reported at the plant before their arrival, but shelling had occurred days before. When I say that Russia is becoming far more desperate, strikes on civilian electrical, food, and transport infrastructure has become far more common. If you would please direct yourselves to the International Humanitarian Law Database, Article 3, Section 7 of the 1996 Amended Protocol 2 to the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons provides, it is prohibited in all circumstances to direct mines, booby traps, and other devices, either in offense, defense, or by way of reprisals against civilian objects. This too includes civilian infrastructure, shelters, and areas that are strictly civilian in nature, such as cultural or religious centers, shopping areas, and residential spaces. What we are witnessing in these random missile attacks is both an untrained conscripted force and a government that is scared that they are losing the war and that they have embarrassed themselves on the world stage. The Russian Federation has claimed to have some of the most advanced and modern fighting forces on the battlefield today. While at first that may have been true, what we are now seeing is untrained conscripts and reservists being thrown into the front lines with no education on the laws of war being told to shoot at whatever moves and has a pulse. When I first started this podcast, there was a portion of audience members that lived in Russia who listened to this show. If you are still listening and you have been able to escape Russia, please know that your government is lying to you. This conflict has nothing to do with the denazification of Ukraine, but a leader who continues to try and reunite former Soviet states. Russian forces blindly strike civilian targets that kill women, children, and the elderly with no regard. The Kramatorsk railway station bombing is one such example of this. According to the Ukrainian government, between 1,000 and 4,000 civilians, mainly women and children, were present at the station awaiting evacuation from the region, which was being subjected to heavy Russian shelling. At 10.24 and 10.25, on April 8, 2022, media affiliated with the People's Republic of Donetsk published videos showing a pair of missiles being launched from Shartarsk, a city under separatist control. At approximately 10.30, two missiles hit near the railway station building in Kramatorsk, and the first reports were published in Ukrainian media at around 10.45. A World Central Kitchen aid worker who witnessed the attack in Kramatorsk said that he heard between 5 and 10 explosions. Victims' bodies were strewn around amid abandoned luggage. The missiles were initially misidentified as Iskander ballistic missiles. Pavlo Kirilenko, governor of Donetsk Oblast, later specified that they had rather been Tochka-U missiles armed with cluster munitions. 
The remnants of one of the missiles had the Russian words Zadete, meaning in revenge for the children, painted in white on its outside. It also bore the serial number SHA-91579, which investigators said could potentially help trace it back to its original arsenal. The Russian government initially claimed responsibility for this attack, but once intelligence officials learned of the true extent of damage and civilian casualties, Russia walked their claim back and tried to blame it on Ukrainian forces conducting a false flag attack against its citizens. During this attack, 60 people, including 7 children, were killed, and over 100 were injured. The fall of Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. On April 11th, Russian and Ukrainian intelligence officials witnessed Russian forces withdrawing in an apparent move to resupply infantry forces and redeploy them elsewhere as Ukrainian forces had successfully repelled other attacks. Russian convoys were detected by both satellite and drone imagery, with the forces traveling to the southern front to merge with other forces in the area. In a strategic move to slow and stall Russian troops, Ukrainian forces destroyed a bridge connecting Kharkiv to Izium. Between May 5th and June 24th, Ukrainian and Russian forces would engage in heavy combat, including the Battle of Severodonetsk, which would last over one month, the Russian capture of Sivotirsk and Lyman, and finally the Azot chemical factory siege, which was eerily reminiscent of the Azovstal iron and steelworks scenario. We are now going to transition into the third phase of the war, which has witnessed Ukrainian counteroffensives against Russian-occupied territories, beginning with a surprise offensive launched in the Kharkiv region. On September 12th, an emboldened Kiev launched a counteroffensive in the area surrounding Kharkiv, with sufficient success for Russia to publicly admit they were losing key positions in the area. The New York Times reported on September 12th that the success of the counteroffensive dented the image of a mighty Putin and led to encouraging the government in Kiev to seek more arms from the West to sustain its counteroffensive in Kharkiv and surrounding areas. On September 21st, Vladimir Putin announced a partial mobilization. He also said that his country will use all means to defend itself. Later that day, the Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, stated that 300,000 reservists would be called on a compulsory basis. The advisor to the President of Ukraine said that the decision was predictable and was an attempt to justify Russia's failures. British Foreign Office Minister Gillian Keegan called the decision an escalation while former Mongolian president accused Russia of using Russian Mongols as cannon fodder. It seems as though the Ukrainian government has forced Russia's hand to deplete their ammunition, food, and trained soldiers to the point of having to announce a partial mobilization and purchase ammunition from elsewhere. It is rumored that any of these conscripted forces have to purchase any camouflage uniforms and body armor they wish to use. There have also been videos released showing conscripts being forced to sleep outside with no tents and on the ground of hard-tiled floors with dirty mattresses. Additionally, this is the point at which we begin to see the cracks forming in what was once a unified response from Russia. The response has escalated to using tactical nuclear weapons on the front as Russia is losing this war. Russian war doctrine actually outlines this as a potential response if the borders of Russia are at risk of collapse. Russia is likely to consider nuclear responses to non-nuclear attacks that it believes present a grave threat to its territorial integrity and sovereignty, continuity of government, and the viability of its strategic nuclear deterrent. The destruction of integrated air defenses arrayed around Russia's heartland or in Kaliningrad in conjunction with other critical losses sustained by Russian conventional forces during conflict could also be considered an existential threat to the state. If Russia chooses to posture and deploy nuclear weapons in Ukraine, we are no longer looking at a regional conflict, but one that involves the world. The utilization of nuclear weapons would be catastrophic, and while it wouldn't necessarily result in an immediate nuclear response from NATO, the further escalation, such as the destruction of the Russian naval fleets, could make Russia more fearful of their territorial integrity 
which could prompt further nuclear escalation. I don't want you to fear about this, but it is something that you should keep in the forefront of your mind because the ramification this presents for the rest of the world will be unprecedented. In late August 2022, Ukraine launched a counteroffensive against Russian forces occupying the country since the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February 24th of the same year. Engagements were reported on Ukraine's southern Kherson and Mykolaiv oblasts originally, it was announced that it would be aimed at retaking the entirety of Russian-occupied territory within the Kherson, Zaporizhia, and Mykolaiv oblasts. Military analysts consider the counteroffensive to be the third strategic phase of the war in Ukraine, after the initial invasion and Battle of Donbass. After a prelude consisting of numerous strikes against Russian targets, Ukraine announced the start of a full-scale counteroffensive on August 29th. Military operations began shortly thereafter, with Ukrainian units claiming infantry breakthroughs along the entire southern front line. A week later, another major Ukrainian counteroffensive began in the northeast in Kharkiv Oblast. On September 6th, an additional counteroffensive in the Kharkiv region led to Ukraine regaining significant ground in what was once Russian-occupied territory. Ukrainian forces were able to successfully regain almost all territory that was initially lost in 24 hours versus the months-long campaign that Russian forces underwent to occupy said territory. As of right now, Russia has held false referendums to declare the Luhansk and Donetsk regions as part of Russia. However, what you're not seeing is that many were forced to vote at gunpoint. As I am writing this episode, satellite and drone imagery has identified Russian train movements with what appear to be nuclear weapons moving toward the front in Ukraine. Russia has claimed that they plan to test their nuclear weapons. The one question is where. What I fear is happening is that Russia is rushing to falsely annex these portions of Ukraine in an attempt to utilize their nuclear weapons citing territorial integrity. If that happens, I don't know where it goes from here. I don't want to be right about this. I don't even want to have to think about it. Yet, here we are. In my opinion, I believe that Russia will do whatever they believe is necessary to maintain their quote-unquote global position. Almost 1 million people have fled the country following the announcement of the mobilization, and I'm not sure how much Russia has left to fall back on until nuclear deterrence are utilized. What is known is that they've utilized the majority of their smart weapons, and all they have to fall back on now is Soviet-era technology that has not been maintained in over 40 years. I wish I could sit here and tell you that the two countries are in the process of signing a peace treaty, but no, that is unfortunately not the case here. Russia continues to ramp up their rhetoric with regard to utilizing nuclear weapons on the front lines. No matter how many times I write this ending, it doesn't make me feel any better. Lives have been lost for a cause that was created out of a void for Vladimir Putin to try and reunify the Soviet Union. He doesn't realize the world has continued to advance while Russia has stagnated on the world stage, and this has proven just what corruption and a lack of leadership does to a military internally. One cannot simply say that their ground forces are the most advanced in the world and not do anything to develop those forces. We are still seeing Soviet-era technology being utilized on the battlefield today. When Russia first started this invasion, they did utilize their modern tanks and their modern equipment on the battlefield. However, they had faults. They hadn't been fully tested and were utilized in a war that is using Western technology. At one point in history, Russia was our biggest antagonist on the battlefield. However, what Russia has lacked is a fight with a near-peer competitor on the battlefield. This right here is a true example of what corruption and blind loyalty will do to a military. One thing that I want to hammer across is that the civilians of Ukraine are still suffering. This war has taken a severe toll on the people and the economy of Ukraine, with an estimate provided by the World Bank that Ukraine could experience a decline of 35% in 2022. The war has destroyed factories and farmland and displaced millions of Ukrainians. The World Bank, a 189-country anti-poverty agency, estimates that rebuilding the country will cost at least $349 billion, 1.5 times the size of Ukraine's pre-war economy. 
Ukraine continues to need enormous financial support as the war needlessly rages on as well for recovery and reconstruction projects, said Anna Burge, World Bank Vice President for Europe and Central Asia. Still, the bank's assessment for Ukraine's economy marks an upgrade from the 45.1% freefall it forecasted in June, and it expects the Ukrainian economy will return to growth in 2023, expanding 3.3%, though the outlook is highly uncertain and will depend on the course of the war. This event is an evolving disaster and is not something that we will see every single day. We as humans must realize that war is not the answer and that it must be avoided at all costs. That's it for the episode this week. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate it five stars and leave a review. Be sure to follow the show on both Instagram and Twitter where you can get the latest updates from the show. Until next week, this has been Destination Disaster. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.